Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, whenever you're listening, and welcome to Tri-State at the Plate. I'm your host, Andy Burdick, joined today by the big red machine of this podcast, Bob Finkbeiner. Bob, how are you? I'm great. Glad to be back here. It is good to have you back. How was your spiritual journey to the Northeast? Did you find yourself on this trip? I did, and uh, as you and uh, our wonderful buddy Jason referred to me and my inclination to spend much time at brew pubs, I was able to hit up several brew pubs in Maine, but I was also able to tie in some baseball as I attended a Portland Sea Dogs baseball game. There is no greater natural habitat for Bob Finkbeiner than breweries and baseball. That's If they built a stadium inside a brewery, that's the only way you could have been more at home on that trip, I think. That'd been pretty phenomenal. <laughs> Maybe a business idea we need to look into. That's what we, yeah, just a giant brewery with a baseball stadium in the middle of it. Yeah, that was a good trip, though. Had a lot of fun. How was the Portland Sea Dog Stadium? It's great, actually. It's kind of like a miniature family park in a way. They have a, like a little green monster out in left field. Yeah. So that was nice. I got to see uh, Gohan Mancata and... Uh, Andrew Bentendi, so that was nice to see them play. Uh, good environment overall, big crowd. And I remember the Eastern League team, which is nice. So I got to see them play the New Hampshire Fisher Cats. Very good, very good. Andrew Benintendi is uh, stirring up uh, everybody's interest lately. He's been yes. on quite the tear down there. Yeah. That's good. Uh, well, it's good to have you back. We're definitely ready to talk some baseball. It's been, I think, almost two weeks before we recorded last, so we need to get this podcast out into the world and let everybody know what's happening. Mm -hmm. So today we're going to be talking about the Pirates. We're going to be talking about the Indians. We're going to finish up today with a little pop-up culture. We're going to have the Tri-State of Mind book club today. Bob and I have both read The Arm by Jeff Passan, so we're going to be finishing up with a, a little discussion about that. But before we get to all that, we have to talk about the hottest topic in baseball right now. It is This topic is on fire. If you want to see everybody's hot takes, go to Twitter and search for this player's name because you will find plenty of hot takes about this player. We are talking, of course, about none other than Chicago White Sox starter Chris Sale, who was suspended five games this past Saturday for violating team rules, insubordination, and destroying team equipment. Now, there's one of those things that is uh, a little more uh, unique, I suppose I should say, to a baseball player suspension than the others, which is, of course, destroying team equipment. Bob, are you are you familiar with Chris Sale's uh, recent uh, social struggles in the clubhouse? I most certainly am. Maybe. Could we, could we fill everybody in, Bob, on what Chris Sale did to get himself suspended? Well, Chris Sale... Uh... They wanted to have a throwback jersey, I guess, event in their game. And they chose the 1976 White Sox uniforms, which are one of the worst set uniforms I've ever seen in baseball history. And Chris Sella said, no, I'm pitching today. It's my choice. We're not wearing these. And ownership said, sorry, pal, uh, you're going to wear them anyway. And then he took matters in his own hands and basically cut off the jerseys so no one could wear them. Which I'm gonna be I, I'm gonna be honest here. I'm I'm a sixth grade teacher and this sounds like something that I could imagine a twelve year old in my classroom doing. Not getting their way, just losing their mind, and then just destroying whatever it is that they didn't want to have to deal with. Well, what's interesting though is and I didn't know about this until I was reading more about the whole story. 
Apparently, it's tradition or common practice for almost all 30 major league ball clubs that when a throwback event takes place, they ask the starting pitcher, would you mind wearing his uniform on your day of start? And typically, it must, I'm assuming it must have been an issue for most pitchers. I'm sure the ones we do have an issue with, we don't hear much about, and they probably just delay it a game or two. But uh, in this case, Chris Hill didn't want to wear him, and ownership is to comply with his request, said, no, we're going to wear him. And then Chris Hill started to behave like a little kid. <laughs> so I, don't, I, I try and – baseball's a weird thing. You know, baseball's like a very escapist activity. Like I watch baseball every day so that I can just forget about my – my normal average life and I can kind of escape into this whole world of numbers and strategy and the uh, minutia that, that happens on a baseball field. But I, I, I try and put baseball in the context of the real world as much as I can. And so if you just kind of break this situation down as, as if it happened in the real real world, what you had was an employer who gave an employee a directive, right? Like the White Sox are paying Chris Sale a lot of money. And they told him like, "Hey, we want you to wear these jerseys." And Chris Sale's response was, "No. I don't want to wear them." Which, you know, that's I suppose that in and of itself is probably a valid response to something that you don't want to do when you're an employee. I mean, there's there's nothing wrong with saying like, "No, I don't want to do that." But when your employer is pretty adamant about like, well, we're not asking you. This is more of a directive. Like if that happened in the real world, you know, if you were just in like your cubicle and your boss came over and said like, hey, I need these uh, TPS reports. And you said <laughs> no. And your boss is like, well, no, I'm I'm not asking you if you want to do them. I just need you to do them. And then your response to that was to just cut up the TPS reports. Like, man, oh, you would not last long in that in that particular office. You know what I mean? And so to think that there was an employer who told an employee, I, I need you to wear these uniforms. And then the employee's response was to just shred them with a knife so that nobody could wear them. Like, it's pretty insane when you put it in the context of the real world, just in and of itself. Now, in the context of the baseball world, sure, it's probably like, I don't know maybe like a top five crazy thing that has happened this year. But like, you know, baseball is its own unique monster and they have their own weird set of rules and stuff like that. And I understand, you know, the, the pirates with AJ Burnett, you know, AJ Burnett before all of his starts would always pick the jerseys. And a lot of times he would pick the camo jerseys to wear and things like that. But when it boils down to it, this is your employer telling an employee something that they need to do. <laughs> it's, it's pretty uncouth to take a knife to the jerseys just because you don't want to wear them. And the other thing I will say, too, and this is something that just, uh, you know, I got to get up on my soapbox for this because it just it bothered me probably the most about this whole thing. But, you know, Chris Sale is touted as this clubhouse leader. And when all the Adam LaRoche stuff was going on, everybody turned to Chris Sale and he was talking about just how upset he was and he couldn't believe that Adam LaRoche would be treated like that. And Drake's the real leader in the clubhouse, da, 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 da. Part of being a leader is being able to follow directions you know what i mean like part of being a leader is sometimes you have to do things you don't want to do and you just go out there and you do it the best that you can anyways and i i think it bothers me on a personal level because everybody seems to be holding chris sale to this higher standard of oh look at this guy standing up for what he believes in i i don't buy that i think that's just 
petulance. I think it's it's immaturity. And I think it's kind of like mentally unstable, if you ask me. Like, imagine if you had a girlfriend that just like, you know, you broke up with her and she's she's just upset. So she just shreds all your stuff and throws it out in the yard yelling at you. You you would think that that girl was insane, right? This is like the same kind of thing as that. Like, I, I think it's I think it's kind of I, I think it's kind of crazy. I think it's poor leadership and it's it's petulance on a level that we don't really accept in any other corner of society. But. See, I have a different point of view on this whole take. <laughs> I just went on this amazing soapbox rant, and you just cut that soapbox right out from under me, Bob. All right, let's hear it. What do you What do you think? Uh, one, baseball is not the real world, unfortunately. No. <laughs> so their set of rules are far different, obviously, than should we say the normal corporate world of America, and even like the public sector and nonprofits, even that go go far that way too. Uh, I don't applaud or approve of sales actions of cutting up the jerseys. But I want to ask you though something. If tradition has been in the past for all these ball clubs to make sure it's okay with the pitcher if we're wearing these things, and you perhaps are the owner of the LA Dodgers, and Clayton Kershaw tells you, hey, Mr. Burdick, you know, I appreciate you wanting to wear these jerseys today, but you know, you're paying me $27 million a season to go out there and pitch. I don't feel comfortable wearing these things. I don't like them. Can we just not do it? Are you going to tell Clayton Kershaw, the face of the franchise, you're paying $27 million? That, no. You're going to wear them anyway? Well, now in this purely hypothetical situation, based on the type of personality that I have, so just saying that you take me and my personality and my beliefs and and how I feel about things. And you plop me in a situation like that just as is. So nothing else has affected me. I don't have any biases from growing up super rich and owning a baseball team. It's just <laughs> where 2016 Andy is right now in his life, just plop down as the owner of a team. And Clayton Kershaw comes up to me and tells me he doesn't want to wear those jerseys. I would absolutely be like, I don't care what you like. If you want to go out in a t-shirt and jeans and pitch, I don't care. Like, <laughs> we'll all wear t-shirt and jeans. I don't, I don't care. That's the kind of person I am. So that would be my response. Yes, I my response would be like, I don't, I don't care what you wear. Okay, and then my last point is to make here is without knowing more about the internal workings of the clubhouse, I perceive sales actions in the spring and now as perhaps a bullying point of frustration that he's had several strong seasons of success. He signed to a very, very team-friendly deal for a number one pitcher who obviously is um, desired by almost every ball club in baseball. And perhaps the inner workings of the organization from the top down is just to the point where he feels like they're not making any improvements, they're very frustrating, they're not winning ball games, but he's pitching very, very well. And now he's can't handle anymore. And maybe, maybe this is a way of him saying, I want out of here. That's kind of, and that was going to be one of the things that I was going to get to. I don't see how this relationship can, can survive for the duration of sales contracts. Oh yeah. Like that. That's a, that's a pretty, you, you kind of went off the deep end, Chris sale. I don't, <laughs> I don't understand how ownership and Chris sale can continue to have a relationship. This is a pretty destructive thing. I think everybody needs to kind of walk away and uh, just agree that that being apart 
is in the best interest for both parties. You know, and for that organization too, because I don't really, I mean, I like the history of the White Sox, obviously, but not some of their ownership pieces, you know, annoy me. But it makes you wonder a little bit, was this done intentionally to see the reaction that we get from Chris Sale? Yeah, I don't, I don't I know. It's... Honestly, if someone's pushing his buttons to see, okay, what are you going to do? Yeah, that. I mean, I guess based on what I've heard about Jerry Reinsdorf, he seems to be like an okay owner. You know, from I guess from what I've collected, Reinsdorf Reinsdorf owns the Sox, right? Is that him? Yeah, I think he does still. Yeah, so I think it's Jerry Reinsdorf is who I want to be talking about. But uh, like I, prior to this year, I guess I hadn't heard a lot of negative things about him. Um. So I guess I was kind of taken aback that things with Adam LaRoche grew to the level that they grew to. And then with this whole Jersey thing, I mean, I do, I put a lot of this on Chris Sale, like 95% of this is Chris Sale, I think. So if I were, if I were assigning blame, 95% goes to Chris Sale because you're in control of your own actions. You're perceived at least as a team and clubhouse leader your response to having to wear a jersey that maybe you don't like or you're uncomfortable wearing should never be to go in and cut them all up. That's, that's, what, a, that's what a psychopath does. You, that was a very psychopathic response. But the five... Or frustrated with the actions of the ball club. Yeah, and I, I mean, yeah. So maybe this is like a child psychology thing and maybe he's like, oh, I hate you, Dad. I'm going <laughs> to cut up all your jerseys. I don't know. So yeah, maybe this thing goes deeper, and I don't know. Maybe he needs to go talk to a therapist about why he cut up the owner's jerseys. But the 5% of blame that I assign uh, to the White Sox, if the best player on your team tells you that they don't want to do something, and it's something as minuscule as, like, oh, they just don't want to wear these jerseys, then why are you making it? Why? Why weren't you? Why didn't you just say, okay, you're the best player on our team. We don't care what jersey you wear that's just it. he's he's the best player yeah like why 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 did ownership feel like oh we need to take a stand on this issue (laughs) this is where we're drawing our line in the sand with chris sale we're going to draw the line in the sand with wearing these collared throwback jerseys that he doesn't like we got to show him who's boss (laughs) like what are you kidding me he's the best player on your team and he's like arguably one of the, you know, he's one of the best pitchers in the American League. All of baseball. He's what, a top five pitcher? Top three, maybe? And that's where you're drawing your line in the sand with him. So there's a little bit of blame to go with him. To to ownership. Most of it, don't get me wrong, most of it goes to Chris Sale for behaving like a lunatic. But a little a little bit of it has to go to ownership for I don't know. I mean it's just it's like as a parent now, I'm kind of I'm projecting all of these arguments that I'm going to have with my teenage son. And I'm thinking about like, oh, where's my line in the sand going to be? It, it would not be with that issue. Oh, don't worry. When Dexter gets older, I'm going to tell him about old Chris Sale. Yeah. Be like, hey, so when he gets that one shirt for, for Christmas, he's not going to wear it. and cut it up. You know, when your dad's trying to get you in your Sunday best and you don't want to wear it, <laughs> just take a knife to it. Slice up all the clothes. Be like, what is wrong with you? Yeah. So I don't know. That's that's how I feel about it. Most of the blame goes to Chris Sale. A little bit of the blame has to go to the White Sox. 
Anything else? Anything else you want to add to that? Nope, that was a good discussion. Yeah, I like that. That was my hot take. That's as hot as my take gets. <laughs> not scor- not a scorching hot take, but I'd say a fairly hot take. Okay, let's talk about some uh, real baseball that matters now. So we're going to be talking about the uh, Pittsburgh Pirates. And the f- I have to lead off with this news because it it is, uh, I'd say, very important to the, the state of the franchise this year. And a little <sighs> disheartening, I suppose, for, for Pirates fans. And that news is, of course, that Tyler Glasnow is now on the 15-day disabled list with a shore, sore shoulder. Um, now, I don't know how much you've been following the Pirates since you've been on uh, on the road lately. I've been checking on them. Yeah, you've been peeking in there here and there. So They're playing better baseball, which has been good. I uh, we had we had Baby's Day out during Glasnow's last start, and so you know I was kind of like we like we were walking around the neighborhood, walking down, grabbing some pizza by the beach and stuff. So I had like flipping on my phone every now and then just to see how Glasnow's doing. And so uh, we finish up our walk, and I'm going inside to get ready to turn on the game. Turn on the game, and it's in the fourth inning, and Tyler Glasnow's not in the game anymore. And I'm thinking to myself, whoa, that's like a quick hook by Clint Hurdle, like even for someone like Glasnow. And so, you know, I'm just kind of waiting. I'm like figuring at some point the, you know, the announcers are going to have to tell me what what happened and why Hurdle decided to remove Glasnow. And it turned out, you know, during the I think it was the third inning was I think it was the third inning that they came out and, and they pulled him. And it was like this big meeting on the mound and Hurdle came out and the trainers came out and they I guess they walked Glasnow off the mound. But apparently, so it, it turns out, uh, and I think Neil Huntington stated this and I, did, I didn't cite it, so I, I don't remember where I got it from. But uh, apparently, after uh, they pulled Glasnow from the, his last start, they found out that his shoulder had kind of been bothering him prior to that trip and he just didn't really make it known to anybody and so i guess the front office had to make it kind of clear like hey if your shoulder is bothering you like this you need to make sure that you let us know so that we can get things started and huntington stated that he didn't think it was going to set him back at all um but that it was an issue that was underlying prior to that start so that was why he had to come out now this of course is going to affect the pirates rotation uh in a very negative fashion because, as we've talked about on just about every podcast prior to this, the Pirates rotation, Bob, not so great this year. They're, I don't know, I want to say like 23rd, 24th in ERA still. Um, like, the, their starters are just, they've they've not been good. Um, and so I, a lot of Pittsburgh's success in the second half I thought was going to be predicated on Jamison Talion and... Tyler Glasnow because they're the, like the real reinforcements. You know, they're the they're the guys that can come up and we can insert into our rotation and help make a difference. So the fact that Glasnow is now going to miss, you know, two starts, um, and that's assuming that everything goes off without a hitch. You know, the fact that he's going to miss those next couple starts, that's not good for Pittsburgh. No. Um, Chad Cool down in AAA. Also having some uh, uh, was it elbow issues. Cool um, had to come out of one of his last starts too. So I mean, even now we're now we're talking about the next guy in the pecking order is having some issues as well. So the starting pitching has been hit kind of hard this year. Um, now 
I guess kind of piggybacking off of that when you're talking about the starting pitching, Jonathan Nice, what do you know about his season so far this year, Bob? Who? Well, I, I had to. Uh... It's not been very good. <laughs> That's a very polite way. Of... But you'll get you'll get into the comments made by uh, Neil Huntington here soon. But I was actually driving back from uh, Portland to back home, and I was listening to MLB Radio on Sirius XM, and I caught the interview with Huntington with uh, was it Jeff uh, Bowden and um, the other the other guy on there. Oh, on the fan radio show. No, it wasn't the fan. It was MLB Radio. Oh, okay. It was Jeff Bowden and another former exec. I forget who it was now. Jim Bowden, you mean? I'm oh, sorry. Yeah, Jim Bowden yeah. and another guy. I forget. I don't remember anyway. They had a lengthy interview though with Huntington, and and uh, he kind of clarified his remarks a bit more. But it was the one where he was a little more contrite. <laughs> yeah, he was a little bit more honest. That's basically what he basically says. Like you know, if we're asking me a question, I, I try to answer questions as honestly as I possibly can, and I perhaps was a bit too honest. With <laughs> But, uh, you know, it doesn't mean we're not fans of, obviously, Jonathan Neese, but the performance return we got for him, on him so far, has not been very good. Yeah, so Neese was finally moved to the bullpen. I mean, Pittsburgh's kind of stuck with him because he has a hefty contract this year, and I think it's safe to say he has two club options. Unfortunately, they're club options. Uh, so I think the relationship between Pittsburgh and Jonathan Neese is going to uh be over sooner rather than later. But uh, he was moved to the bullpen. His 2016, you can really only describe it as disastrous or uh, some other word that would be synonymous with disastrous. <laughs> he, <laughs> since his move to the bullpen, he's thrown seven and a third innings, um, surrendered two earned runs, struck out four, walked two. So uh, I think it was his last outing he gave up both of his runs. Uh, I, I don't know that this is the best use of Jonathan Neese having him come out of the bullpen but you certainly couldn't keep running him out there to the tune of a 6 ERA and letting him just keep getting knocked around the way that he was now the interview that you were talking about um, prior to the to the MLB radio interview uh, was on 93.7 the fan and un, I guess unknown to Huntington he didn't realize what he was saying was I guess as negative as it came off I think to say this and then act like you didn't know what you just said uh, was as negative as it was is a little Mr. Magooish. I mean, I think you have to be kind of unaware to not know what you just said is <laughs> not a thing that a typical GM says, but whatever, I'll, I'll take him at face value. Maybe he's just that unaware. Here's his exact quote on the fan. So when he was asked about the Neil Walker trade as a pertain to bringing Jonathan Neese to the Pirates. His direct quote was, we felt that that was our best return and it has not played out that way. And that's a challenge. We own that. We accept that. <laughs> so that kind of stings, that kind of stings it just in and of itself. And so, you know, of course, then the guys on the fans start digging a little bit deeper. And so they asked him about, you know, well, do you think trading, you know, Neil Walker for Jonathan Neese was like, do you feel okay about that? And as it pertained to Neil Walker, and the Walker and Nice trade, he responded, in hindsight, maybe the two fringe prospects and trying to figure out where to re relocate the money might have been a better return. Oh, that one, just below the belt there, that one stings a little bit. Yeah. 
we should have taken the two fringe prospects and then just spent your money somewhere else. I. But you know, I guess it's kind of refreshing to hear a front office guy say that because that's pretty much what every Yinzer in Pittsburgh saying. You know what I mean? Like there is not one person in Pittsburgh that is happy with Jonathan Nice right now. So maybe kudos, I guess, to Neil Huntington for being that blunt. <laughs> but I guess the thing I would say to counter my own point there would be, I don't think that saying that you're upset that you have a guy on your roster and you wish you had two minor league guys instead is going to help Jonathan East perform any better. No. I don't know. But, yeah, I guess it was interesting to hear a general manager just kind of put a player on blast like that. I'm sure he probably had to go do some apologizing. I... I guess I can't imagine. I can't imagine the next conversation he had with Jonathan Nee starting off with anything other than, "Hey, about that interview." <laughs> but I don't know. That that I would like to be a fly on the wall in the clubhouse when Jonathan Nee <laughs> learned about that. I don't know. I I found that pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean that's just again more of the starting pitching woes. So there's a guy that you were counting on being like your number three starter in your rotation who's now so bad that he can't be in your rotation. Uh, so, I mean, it's all just kind of piling on right now in Pittsburgh. Um, speaking of players who haven't performed uh, outstanding this season, I guess, uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates released their 36-year-old catcher, Eric Kratz. I think they picked uh-huh. up Kratz from the Angels uh, after Cervelli went on the DL, if I'm not mistaken. But... uh Kratz cleared waivers. He was outrighted in Indianapolis, and he elected to become a free agent. So I think he's kind of hoping that maybe with a thin catcher depth around the league that he might be able to catch on somewhere. But didn't feel like riding the bus in Indianapolis, I guess. So best of luck to you, Eric Kratz. Thanks for filling in while Cervelli was on the mend. I got to see Eric Kratz pitch in person. Pitch? Yes. Really? In the Pirates game, that long game, how many other innings it was. Oh, yeah. You were down there for that. Yeah, he struck out Brennan Belt. <laughs> it was June 21st, that's what it was, yeah. That was a fun game to be at. Uh, Yeah, for a while. <laughs> <laughs> it was kind of drug on a little bit. <laughs> it's kind of like how we went to, which opening day was that, 2013? Yeah, yeah, Cleveland and, and uh, Toronto. Toronto. Was that 12 or 13? It's one of those years. It was like the... Th- the third or fourth longest opening day game in history. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was the longest opening day game in history. Oh, maybe yeah. Maybe it was the longest opening day, and then maybe it was like the third or fourth longest game in history, yeah, or something like something that. Weird. It was ridiculous. Like Thank yeah, Chris Perez for your blown save. Oh man, because Mason was dealing that day. Well, and you know, you know me with cold. I don't like the cold. I am not. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not built for weather. Like, I'm really more... San Diego is, like, my ideal climate. I really should be just living there where it's, like, 70 all year. But uh, it was so cold that day, and the wind coming off Lake Erie just cut through... Like, it was so cold I couldn't finish my yingling. I was just like, I can't, can't do it. It's too cold. That was awful. Yeah, so it was probably kind of like that, I'm sure. Except not as cold, because it was June 21st. Yeah, it was nice and warm. It was a little toasty. It was temperatures made and approved for Mr. Burdick. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So, uh, Bob, if I said the Pirates need to look to improve one area of their team, 
especially based on our conversations that we're just having. Where do you think the Pittsburgh Pirates would need to improve prior to the trade deadline? Well, I think as you're insinuating a little bit, I mean, I've discussed this throughout the course of this season. Uh, The rotation could use some reinforcements. It is. The rotation is in dire straits right now, Bob. Which brings me to a question I have for you. I was looking online last night, and I came across a familiar player who has not been discussed, I don't think, at all this year, who was just assigned to AAA Indianapolis, Nick Kingham. Mm-hmm. Is he one of your guys that may be a contributor perhaps August, September? I don't know that I would count on Kingham, especially because he's coming back from Tommy John. But he does have experience of pitching in AAA. His prior two years, he has spent, what, half a year each, basically? Yeah. And, so, and I, I am, I, I guess I, I should disclose, I'm a very pro Nick Kingham person. Like Nick, I like Nick Kingham a lot. And I think he has a great chance to be a, well, prior to Tommy John surgery, I thought he had a great chance to be a, a, a really good major league starter. I, I don't know that I would count on him. But for the bullpen. Yeah, I mean, I, I could see him coming at like in a limited role. I don't think he's going to be the guy that like, so last year, if, you know, if Kingham had stayed healthy or whatever. And, but like if they'd have brought Kingham up last year and been like, all right, we're going to throw him out there and we're going to let this kid, you know, uh, win some games for us. And they threw him out there in the middle of last season. I'd have been excited about that because we were going to see what Nick Kingham had and, you know, he has great fastball, lots of movement, you know, great breaking ball, good off speed stuff. But, you know, he's coming off Tommy John. He doesn't have any, you know, real major league experience. I don't think he's thrown an inning for the pirates on the major league roster. Has he? He is not no. Yeah. So I don't know that he's necessarily a guy that I would count on to come in and make a, a big impact, but I could see, like you said, maybe in a limited role, you know, maybe come in and come out of the bullpen, get some work out there. He has great. I tell you, when we saw him in Erie, um, was that last last year or two years ago? Uh, the last time that we saw him pitch in Erie, I think it was last was it last year before he got injured. Anyways, his fastball was 95, 96, sharp, sharp breaking ball. Um, you know, if he comes back and he's the same pitcher that he was before he got injured, I think, yeah, sure. He could come up and have an impact. Definitely. But I don't think it'll be as like a big game starting pitcher kind of role. But yeah, I am, I am very pro Nick Kingham. And I, I think, you know, next year, maybe we can look at like that. That's where he has the impact that I was hoping that he would have had, you know, this year or maybe even last year at the end of the year. Um, yeah. Our rotation. Let's make a, uh, <clears throat> a shout out to former Cy Young Award winner Juan Nicasio. It may change his name to Juan. I'm a beast at the bullpen, Nicasio. <laughs> Which, you know, we said at the beginning of the year. Right. We, we thought that was probably how Juan Nicasio would best be deployed. I was kind of surprised that the Pirates stuck with him as long as they did as a starter. I think he started like t- 12 games. Um, you know, before they assign him to this bullpen role. And he is, he's, he's been pretty nasty out of the bullpen. Oh, he has been. Yeah. Um, you know, he's thrown multiple innings out of the bullpen as well. Um, you know, like his last game that he came in, uh, the 23rd, he threw two innings, uh, against Philadelphia, 
he came out, he threw two innings against Milwaukee. Both of those were not like great outings. You know, he gave up I think, a run in both of those. But, you know, prior to that against the Nationals, he threw three innings, struck out four. Um, so, yeah, I mean, he's he's been he's been much better out of the bullpen than he has as a starter. He's lowered his ERA to almost five, Bob. So that's good. <laughs> yes, he has. That's that's a painful one. <laughs> that's a painful sentence to have to say. Um, but yeah, so Juan Nicasio to the bullpen. <clears throat> the the Pirates, though, I think the the only way that they're really going to improve at this point because they've just you know they've got Talion up. They called up Glasnow, who's now on the disabled list. The only way that Pittsburgh's really going to improve at this point is externally. I mean, you know, you can call up Chad Cool, you can call up Stephen Brault. Um, you know, you have some of those minor league guys that that can come up and probably pitch serviceably, but they're not going to be the impact kind of player that you need them to be uh, in order to really, I think, make up the ground that you need to uh, to be a a playoff contending team. So, so I think we won't deal then. I, I think that's what they have to do. And not surprisingly, Pittsburgh's popped up in quite a few trade rumors uh, in the last couple weeks. I think, you know, just all the dings and dents to their pitching and, you know, their desire to try and make the playoffs for what the fourth consecutive year mm-hmm. has kind of led them to this point. Now, Pittsburgh sent scouts to uh, some raise games. Now, <clears throat> there's a couple different raised pitchers I guess Pittsburgh has been interested in. The first one is the sexiest one, which is one of my favorite pitchers in baseball who's not having such a great year, and that's Tampa Bay Rays starter Chris Archer. Now, on MLB Trade Rumors, that website alleges that the asking price for Chris Archer, who is under team control through, I think, 2021. So... He's under control for a while, pretty reasonably priced. The asking price for Chris Archer, apparently, according to MLB Trade Rumors, started at <laughs> Tyler Glasnow and Austin Meadows. Ooh. So I think we can pretty much safely say we're not going to end up with Chris Archer on our team. Like, at that point, at that point, when you ask for both of those players, I feel like that's like a video game trade. That's like a trade that you know it's just not going to happen. We're just we're just going to say the most two most ridiculous things that we could say, and see if you'll just do it. Like Glasnow is already up, and we have an idea of what his ceiling can be. And I don't think it's unreasonable to say the Glasnow ceiling, you know, is any lower than what Chris Archer's is. And Austin Meadows is, what, 22, 21? Mm-hmm. And already in AAA? So, I mean, I feel like if Tampa, if, if in fact Tampa Bay did say, yeah, we want Glasnow and Meadows, we'll deal Archer. I feel like if they did say that, they knew that Pittsburgh's response would be no. Just a question for you. Yeah. And I mean, we talked about this before in the past, and you mentioned that Quite a bit with Jason last time you guys podcasted. Austin Meadows, for the hype around him and pedigree that he possesses, which is pretty outstanding, what do you do with him? You don't have a spot for him to play. Yeah, I think that's why 
we know that the relationship with Andrew McCutcheon is a pretty terminal one at this point. <laughs> yeah. Because so let's say you want to give Meadows a full season even in Indianapolis. So let's say he spends all of next year in Indy. Maybe he's got stuff that you want him to work on. Maybe he's having an okay year, but not a, a stellar year when you leave him in AAA, you know, from the start of the season. So even if you let him go the whole year in Indianapolis, are you going to keep him down again the next year? Right. The last year of Andrew McCutcheon's contract? And so the fact that, and, you know, I, I talked about this with Jason, but the fact that the Pirates haven't, extended Andrew McCutcheon past this current extension that they signed him through. The fact that they haven't done that s says just as much as anything else. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It basically, it basically says like, <laughs> we're comfortable with this deal. We're, we're, you know, we're okay with what's going to happen through 2009 or through 2018. And we'll figure out the rest later. It's a very team friendly deal. At $14 million, I mean, if Pittsburgh needs to move Andrew McCutcheon, it's not going to be hard for them to do that. I just can't see them leaving oh, it, in Indianapolis for two more years. Yeah, you can't you can't do that. And it hurts me. It physically hurts me to have to say that they have to trade Andrew McCutcheon. But no, in an ideal, ideal world, <clears throat> how wonderful would it be if McCutcheon can play first base and Josh Bell can play third base? I'm just yeah. throwing this out there, obviously, as I total hyperbole, but I had uh, I had a conversation <laughs> with my dad. So I had a conversation with my dad that basically started with Andrew McCutcheon is the best player I've seen play since Barry Bonds. And it makes me sad that we and like I'm pretty objective about the Pirates and, and baseball in general. Like I, I get it's a business and you have to do what you have to do. But man, we were so bad for so long. And Andrew McCutcheon is part of that, like turnaround. And he has that kind of significance to the franchise that I haven't seen since, you know, Barry Bonds walked away. And so I said, yeah, like maybe they could just go like Willie Stargell on him and just move him to first base. <laughs> My dad's like, you think they're going to put a five foot 10 guy at first base? Why <laughs> You're right, dad. Probably not. <laughs> so, yeah, I don't know. I mean, yeah, like this is a total rabbit hole tangent, but yeah, the the fact that they have an extended cut past this says a lot. And I think it says that <laughs> we're ready to we're ready to either move you or uh you know Well it really reinforces the idea to me also as looking on the same now side, I really wonder knowing the contractual situation with concussion in the pirates, obviously you have Meadows in AAA now and doing very well. Maybe the Buckos are actually willing to pry themselves away from Meadows if it lands them an archer or somebody, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I mean, if you're doing that, then I, I feel like you probably have to make that commitment to to Kutch. Um, at the same time, I mean, they have, what, two more years, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I guess they have Kutch through 2018. So, I mean, so let's, I mean, you could go down this rabbit hole too. But if you trade Austin Meadows, you're going to slide Kutch over to a corner because you can't just keep him in center field. Right. So you slide him over to right, Polanco to left, Marte to center. Yep. Um, 
Yeah, I mean, if so, if you let Kutch play out his contract, maybe you have a guy like, you know, like a Harold Ramirez, um, you know, not your like top outfield prospect, not your Austin Meadows, but like your next tier of outfielders, like a, a player like that who comes up and you you kind of try and find the next guy that can slot in in right field with Marte and Polanco in center and left. Um, yeah. Well, how's, how's Willie Garcia doing this year? Uh, Willie Garcia's having an all right year. He was actually kind of bandied about in some trade rumors, I believe. Um, I mean, Willie, yeah, Willie Garcia has like a, <laughs> he has an arm for right field. I think he's, he's been ranked the last couple of years as the best arm in minor league baseball. Um, so yeah, I mean, maybe it's like a Willie Garcia, um, you know, maybe it's a Harold Ramirez, you know, maybe it's a, a player like that, that you kind of get, uh, to, to come up and just, you know, slot in the outfield next to Marte and Polanco. I mean, if it nets you that starting pitcher that your rotation needs, and you think Chris Archer is that guy? Yeah, uh, five years under control. Yeah, then you go for it. Now, I guess I I would I would say if you trade for Chris Archer, kind of like you traded for Jonathan Nice, because you think you're getting a certain kind of pitcher, kind of like you did with Jonathan Nice, and then it turns out that you don't get that kind of pitcher, kind of like happened with Jonathan Nice, <laughs> then you have five years of a broken pitcher and you don't have the face of the next phase of your franchise. So I'm sure Pittsburgh is probably going to tread lightly when it comes to trading Austin Meadows, but we'll see. I mean, that'll be the most interesting aspect of this trade deadline is Pittsburgh's apparently in on some starting pitchers and not just like the, I mean, they're like premier names. They're, they're like a Chris Archer. Uh, the other and and that kind of leads us to the other starters that they looked at in Tampa. They're not as sexy as Chris Archer, but I mean it was still they were looking at I guess Matt Moore and Jake Odorizzi uh, as well. They're and I, I guess I I should also say Chris Archer is not having the best year of his career. He's certainly not having the 2015 caliber season, but his stuff is electric, man. He's striking out 10.38 batters per nine or something like that. I mean it's ridiculous. So strikeouts are still there. His xFIP, so you take out the defense, um, the defensive factors. His xFIP's three and a half. Um, so you you take out some of those defensive factors, some of the home runs. You know, if his home runs, his home run rate's like seventeen percent, which yeah, it's is pretty high. I mean, that's yeah, that's that's abnormally high. You know, usually it, it fluctuates between like nine and ten percent um, in an average season. So you, you take out some of those factors, the defense, the the home runs. Um, you know, if Chris Archer were pitching in a different park or, you know, maybe a, had a couple different things go his way, his ERA could look a lot different. Um, so, but Matt Moore and Jake Odorizzi are not Chris Archer. They're not that, like, tip-top-of-the-rotation type starters. But, you know, they're still good. They would be upgrades over what Pittsburgh is, is running out there now in the 4-5 and five spot. Um, I think Jeff Locke has got to be sweating a little bit at this point. <laughs> When they've already <laughs> talked about moving him out of the bullpen and, you know, some weekend series and stuff like that. So um, those were two other names that the Pirates were in. And then prior to the whole Tampa Bay, uh, the interest in Tampa Bay starters, uh, the Pirates were also uh, allegedly talking to the Yankees. Um, so Robert Temple of the Pittsburgh Trib um, said that they had discussed a trade uh, with the Yankees of Nathan Eovaldi. Um, Eovaldi has struggled this year also. So I think you can see a kind of recurring theme with Pittsburgh targeting pitchers. They all seem to be struggling this year. 
and apparently Pittsburgh thinks they can fix them. Um, but I, I actually, I wrote an article about Eovaldi. Um, I think it was last year or two years ago. I'm very pro Nate Eovaldi. Um, he has one of the highest fastball velocities in all of baseball. Um, he has a good ground ball rate and he just seems like that prototypical pirates reclamation project. He seems like the kind of guy that has the, the numbers that Pittsburgh likes that they could turn into, you know, another, maybe Francisco Liriano, um, if they can work with them the right way. So that is pretty much it on the Pittsburgh trade front. It's so, I mean, Neil Huntington stated that they're going to be active. They're going to be looking to improve the, uh, starting pitching. So kind of keep your eye on it over the next couple of days. It'll be interesting to see. All right, Bob, you ready to talk about the tribe? Oh, uh, sure. All right. What's going on in tribe town? Uh, they had a tough weekend series at Camden. Uh, lost all three games to the Orioles, which uh, concluded Sunday with a walk-off home run from Northwestern PA native Nolan Reimold. So he did a in. <laughs> uh, they're not playing very well in July. They had that scorched river June, obviously led by that 14-game winning streak. In June, they were 22-6, and six, which obviously catapulted them in the first place, but they've remained there since. And then July, so far, they're only 8-11. and 11. They are not scoring runs as they did in the past month, and they're allowing quite a bit more runs in the prior month as well. So the Indians rumor mill has them uh, acquiring bullpen relief help. You know, there's a little bit tired about the Yankees and Andrew Miller. That cost a fortune, though, in prospects. Also, they were supposedly linked to the Brewers and Jonathan Lucroy. And possibly another relief pitcher from them. Yeah, what I happened lost. with all the Lucroy talk? I don't know. It just kind of like seemed to peter out all of a sudden. Yeah. And I'm not really sure. It's sort of hard to gauge the seriousness, I suppose, of the Cleveland rumors. I mean, you had the one radio station saying that prior to Cubs acquiring Chapman, that the Indians had presented the best offer to the Yankees for Chapman. What the offer was... I've not seen anything about it or who they offered. But when I saw what the Cubs give up, though, for Chapman, a rental, I thought, holy cow, that was a lot. I could not believe that. <laughs> so, it, it I mean, why? And I hope that that's not like, is that, is that the bar now been set? Because I hope not. I mean, this is going to be, I, I can't imagine the prospects required to get Andrew Miller then, if that's the case. Yeah, like, and we texted, we texted this yesterday, but that, that package that they sent to the, that the Cubs sent to the Yankees for Chapman felt like the package that they should have sent to the Yankees for For Miller. Miller. Yeah. Like, I don't, (laughs) like, boy, that was, that was a steep pack. I mean, two top 100 prospects plus Adam Warren and. Uh, another outfielder was in that deal too, but uh, yeah, Richard <laughs> Crawford. So, yeah that that was a that was a steep price. I mean, it, it makes me kind of curious, like what would Cleveland have to put together to get Andrew Miller? Right, and that's what scares me. I mean, obviously, it's not a terrible farm system, but if you acquire Miller for what appears to be the asking price established by the Chapman trade, you're going to deplete. <laughs> A significant portion of your farm system and high yeah, I mean, talent. you can't give up 
Frazier Zimmer for a relief pitcher. Like that, that would just be nuts, wouldn't it? I, I, I think so. Especially when that's an area on your roster where you're, you're weak at. They're also rumored to be in on the Melvin Upton uh, rumors too, which I'm not sure why. I'm not a big Upton <clears throat> fan. Do you know but, why? Do you know why they're not in on those rumors anymore? Because he got traded to the Blue Jays. <laughs> That's right. Which made no, me happy. No Melvin Upton for you. <laughs> yeah. As much as I wanted to see the tribe, you know, close out a game with Chapman on board instead of against them, I told my wife, I said, I don't want the Indians acquiring Chapman. I'm afraid they're going to give up way too much for a 2 month player. There's no way he's going to resign in Cleveland. No way. Right, yeah. That just scares the crap out of me. Uh, Michael Brantley, which could be the biggest you know, benefit of the trade deadline for the tribe, had uh, an operation to remove some scar tissue built up around his front of his shoulder. So they're hoping that that was causing this discomfort and pain and that that being removed will now allow him to proceed with baseball activities hopefully this week sometime. I mean, he was out on rehab assignment and then he felt discomfort and was unable to play back-to-back games. That's the procedure, and now probably back to, I would imagine, maybe some buying practice and hopefully rehab here soon again. Yeah, that would be a huge boost for the Indians to get a, a healthy Brantley back down the stretch. It would be big. I mean, I love what they've done so far. They're sort of hodgepodge mix of the outfield, you know, between uh, Chisholm, Ramirez, Davis, Naquin. But here's something that's really scary. Uh, our, you know, big fan, Tyron Aquin. Do you know what his Babbitt is right now? It's got to be like like 372 or something like that, wasn't it? It's higher than that. Is it? It is an unsustainable 421. <laughs> <laughs> so that's we dare a, say that his ridiculous. 321 average might be due for a regression at some point. So you're telling me that his average is going to get lower, huh? I'm guessing probably. <laughs> <laughs> That's pretty oh, ridiculous. Yeah. So uh, there's, some opp- there's some opportunities internally though to get better offensively. One uh, person was posting on one of the various websites in Cleveland that third base prospect Yandy Diaz, who does not possess a lot of power, traditional power that is, but has a great sense of plate discipline. Actually, draw more walks and strikeouts in Triple A. Come up and play their base a little bit, which would spell, you know, Ramirez more to a full-time outfield spot, and then get Juan Ribe's bat out of the lineup because he's not performing very well offensively. So it really reminds me of like the late uh, Jason Giambi, great guy in clubhouse. Offensively, you get a little bit every now and then. Uh, besides that, they're in the market supposedly for bullpen relief, bullpen help still. They just signed to a minor league contract, Joe Thatcher. We'll see what that does, if anything. But it's an interesting note, too. Going back and reviewing this trade, because you guys mentioned it before the other day, and I'll bring it back up. Prospects. We love prospects. We fond over them. They're never a proven thing. So on July 30th, 2011, the Indians sent Drew Pomerantz, their first-round pick, 
to the Colorado Rockies, along with Joe Gardner, outfielder Matt McBride, and another first-round draft choice, Alex White, for Ubaldo Jimenez. Yeah, and that's... And there was a lot of talk about, oh, man, it's just too much, it's not too much. Well, you flash, you flash forward a little bit. <clears throat> Jimenez did not uh, help Cleveland to the postseason that season, but he was instrumental, though, in getting him there in 2013. So, so he, had, he actually threw some good innings for the Tribe. Pomerantz obviously became a late bloomer. He's sort of now found his own groove this season. Yeah, well, and that's that's what I want to say about Pomerantz. So, you know, Alex, Alex White, I don't even know, if, is he pitching in someone's system? I don't even know what Alex White's doing no. now. But. Uh, Joe Gardner, Matt McBride, and Alex White. Alex White sort of had the same unfortunate history as Adam Miller did. He uh, injured that tendon in his finger, and... It ruined Adam Miller's career, basically, and it's ruined Alex White's career. He's out of baseball right now. Yeah. Or at least he's out of uh, professional baseball. Maybe be playing independently maybe somewhere, but he's not in the MILB system. So, But there's no way of knowing, you know, even if you keep Pomerantz in your system because you think like, oh, yeah, you know, down the road we think we can develop him into this. Like there's no guarantee that if he stayed in Cleveland system that he develops into the pitcher that he is. You know what I mean? Right. I mean, that's, you know... You can try and project that all you want, but you have no idea whether Pomerantz has this year that he's having if Cleveland keeps him in his system. So, yeah, I mean, the trade at the time, you know, I thought it was a pretty, pretty great trade at the time. And I think because Pomerantz was not sent to uh, Colorado to August because of that weird rule. I think it's been changed now where you draft a guy in June, but you can't trade him to about three days after he's been signed. Right, yeah. That was the case because uh, Jason and I, we actually drove to Akron to watch Pomerantz pitch. And it was probably the hottest day to watch a baseball game in our entire lives. <laughs> like, we tried to sit behind home plate and watch Pomerantz up close and personal, and we just couldn't do it. It was so <laughs> ridiculously hot. And then, I think two days later, they announced that he was the uh, player to be named later. He kicked upon the deal, basically. And he was gone. Yeah. Okay, so uh, anything else we need to touch on with Cleveland? Uh, there was some transactions. The Indians announced that they have promoted, at the same time, outfielders Clint Frazier and Bradley Zimmer to Columbus. They are to make their AAA debuts, I believe, tonight. They had an off day yesterday. At the same time, replacing them in Akron, the Indians announced they promoted outfielder <clears throat> Greg Allen from High Lynchburg, along with Luigi Rodriguez, to Akron as replacements. And they are both uh, pretty solid players. Uh, Greg Allen actually might be leading or was leading the High uh, Carolina League in stolen bases. He's pretty fast, good on base guy, good average guy. So he's kind of climbing the leaderboard for prospect list for Indians. And I happen to watch twice now Mahoney Valley first round uh, draft choice Tristan McKenzie. He's been wheeling and dealing. He's been just absolutely impressive as a 18 year old, I believe, in your Penn League. I don't know if Cleveland wants to keep him there the whole time or maybe challenge him a little bit with the promotion, maybe in the Lake County at the end of the season. Hard to say, but I mean he he has been he's so smooth, six foot five, 
maybe 175. He's tall and lanky. And he's like a little kid. I, he actually was sitting behind me last night after he pitched game one doubleheader. I left, left him alone. You know, I want to talk to him really bad. But uh, he's just very smooth. Fastball, curveball, changeup. He commands, pitches very well. And just has a lot of first pitch outs, which I like to see. Works fast. And he also has strikeout ability, too. So you would not want to see Tristan McKenzie in a deal to bring anybody to Cleveland? I don't. I mean, as much as I I want to increase or improve the ball club as much as possible, having watched McKenzie twice now, and obviously a lot can change between now and then because it's only 18, but he just seems like he's so advanced and smooth that I think he, of all guys I've seen as young prospects, he impresses me the most so far as a pitcher. Yeah, I was going to say, because the last time we felt this way about a prospect was Francisco Lindor. <laughs> and he turned out all right. He's not that, He's not too bad, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And uh, another uh, fan, uh, Francisco Mejia, a catcher, so you should be a big fan of him, obviously. He extended his minor league hitting streak, I think, to 36 or 38 games now. Which is impressive because, one, it's a long hitting streak, and two, it's combined levels of uh, the captains and Lynchburg Hellcats. Yeah. Oh, wow. Yeah, last I knew he was on 35 games, so he's still going? He's still going, yep. That's impressive. It's very impressive, Mejia. And he actually missed a few uh, games due to, I think, shoulder discomfort or shoulder issues. We came back and hit him again. All right. So keep an eye on Francisco Mejia down in the minors. Yes. Okay. Anything else with Cleveland? I just pray they get better, but don't mortgage their farm system. Yeah. Don't we all, Bob? Yeah. Don't we all? I should say Young Gun was hurt, too. He suffered a separated shoulder, basically. Right, yeah. That's why. Yeah. That's why Cleveland was. That's why Luke Roy, I would assume, came up in the, uh, the discussion. Yeah, does not require surgery, but he's still out probably six to eight weeks, unfortunately. All right, you ready to talk about the arm? I am. So we're going to have a little uh, pop-up culture. Today we're going to be talking about Jeff Passan's The Arm. So if you intend on reading the book, you don't want to know anything about it, I would uh, skip past this portion of the podcast. (laughs) But Bob and I have both read The Arm, and I have to say it was an exceptional book. One of my favorite baseball books that I've read in the last two or three years, uh, for sure. It was intriguing because we have this Tommy John. It was, I should say, it was intriguing to me because we have this Tommy John epidemic taking place in baseball, where you're seeing, you know, high school kids. I mean, high school kids are getting Tommy John surgery um, at a rate that that is disproportionate to what it was, you know, well, didn't Dr. five Andrews ten years ago. Say like twenty eight percent of his patients now are high school kids. Yeah, that's crazy absolutely crazy and i don't know if you've seen anybody with tommy john (laughs) like i played in a wooden bat league last year and we had a kid that uh played baseball at penn state baron and uh you know he was talking about how he had tommy john i said do you mind can i take a look at your scar and the scar that they leave on your arm from tommy john is huge yeah i mean it (laughs) a foot long might be a little overestimating, but probably not by much. I mean, it goes from basically like the edge of your bicep all the way down 
in kind of like a, a almost a V shape across your elbow and up into your forearm. I mean, it was a gigantic scar. I mean, it looked like a scar where you would expect like a compound fracture to be, not where you're like, you know, replacing a, a ligament. It was ridiculous. So I'm I'm kind of intrigued by this epidemic. And I, I shouldn't say like, like arm injuries are nothing new. And I think that's the thing that we kind of need to, to preface with. And they talk about this and Passon talks about this in the arm. Uh, he goes back and he takes a look at some old time pitchers uh, who had arm problems. And most famously, I would think if you're looking at like pitchers who had an amazing career that was cut short by injuries, he talks with Sandy Koufax about how his career ended abruptly. And I think it's interesting to to see, you know, we like to talk about the, these, you know, alleged golden years of baseball where you had Nolan Ryan that was going out and throwing, you know, 350 innings a year and throwing these 250 pitch outings. And, you know, one game he threw like 17 innings and we're like, yeah, why can't all pitchers be like Nolan Ryan? <laughs> He's a freak. <laughs> Let's just do what Nolan Ryan did, right? Like, why don't we all train like Nolan Ryan? I mean, we have the we're at the greatest point in medical history to ever be alive, right? I mean, we have more technology, more data, more knowledge about the human body than at any other point in human history. And if it were just as simple as like, well, left, let's lift weights like Nolan Ryan and jog as many poles as he did. Like, don't you think every player would do that? Like, would Matt Harvey go lift the weights the same way that Nolan Ryan did if he knew it would have prevented his Tommy John surgery, which may have led to this thoracic issue that he's having. Like, absolutely they would have. It's not that simple. It's not every player is not lit. Nolan Ryan is one of the most unique players to ever play baseball. Like, you're not just going to get another guy like Nolan Ryan that's going to come along and, you know... Be able to use his arm. Nolan Ryan pitched until he was 45, and he was throw his the last pitch of his career was a 96 mile an hour fastball before his arm popped. But at the end of his career, it did pop. Like he got pulled out of his last start because he felt it, you know, he felt his elbow go. And so I think the whole thing, I guess, if I had to say, like, what did I take away from the arm? I took away two things. The first thing is we have no idea why people's elbows go at the rate that they're going. And the second thing that I took away is <laughs> at some point, everybody's arm is going to go. Mm-hmm. Like you're only going to get so many bullets in that gun. Now, I think some guys are able to extend that. You know, like I said, Nolan Ryan pitched until he was 45. Ari Dickey doesn't have a UCL in his elbow. Which is amazing. So, but, but I, I, the thing I took away is, you know, your, your arm is limited, so you need to treat it carefully. So that's, that was kind of the interesting thing to me. Now, I don't know what, what was your kind of takeaway of the arm? What did you, what did you appreciate about that book? Uh, everything you mentioned, I obviously appreciated as well. I also found a new sense of empathy and admiration for the guys who actually struggle 
with the emotional impact as well as physical impact of trying to rehab from that injury. Like, you know, the book chronicles, obviously, Daniel Hudson and Todd Coffey mostly throughout the course of the, the whole thing. But those guys going through what they went through to come back, that's, that's really, really tough. That's the, the rehab from Tommy John is really rigorous. And yeah, I mean, I feel like any average baseball fan, anybody who pays enough attention to the, to the game of baseball to understand what's happening. I feel like we're at a point now where we understand coming back from Tommy John surgery doesn't make you a better pitcher. Like a lot of people for a period of time, there was a popular narrative that was saying, look at all of these players that come back from Tommy John surgery, throwing harder. And we know it's because well, it's not because Tommy John makes your elbow like rookie of the year and you come <laughs> right. back and throw harder. It's because you just rehabbed your arm and your everything is just so much stronger. And, you know, maybe there's a tick in your velocity from that. Um, I would, I kind of wish we had Dr. Garrett on here to talk about the surgery because reading the medical stuff was pretty fascinating. Oh yeah. It was really fascinating. I mean, and the, and the book digs into, you know, Dr. Andrews and, um, yeah, the, the other doctor from the Dodgers. Um, Joe. yeah, Joe. Job. Um, and it, you know, it digs into a lot of the procedures that they had. Todd Coffey's uh, procedure at the beginning of the book is one of those things that will just forever be stuck in my head. Mm-hmm. Um, Todd Coffey's second Tommy John surgery. Uh, you know, when you have your UCL replacement, they take parts of your body to replace your UCL. And so they went into his, I think it was his hamstring first, right? Or was it his wrist first? Uh, wrist first. They went into his wrist first to go, uh, you know, take uh, a ligament out of his wrist and put it in his elbow. And then they realized, well, that's too thin in his wrist. So they stitched his wrist back up and then they went into his hamstring. And then his left hamstring was too thin. So they stitched up and they went to his right hamstring. And that was too thin. Then they stitched him back up on his right hamstring. Eventually, they went to a cadaver yeah. uh, UCL, which is what Coffee wanted to try to avoid. But that was the only way that they were going to get a UCL in there that would hold up. So Todd Coffee left this Tommy John surgery. He was like the only person that's ever had like five scars from a Tommy John surgery. <laughs> like it's... The rehab is crazy. The the surgeries are crazy. Um, I mean, it really does make you kind of appreciate uh, to a degree what these pitchers have to go through uh, in order to perform at the level that they perform at. And at the same time, too, like Todd Coffey, I would say probably it's safe to say that he does not look like an athlete. <laughs> yeah. His physical side and everything. Here's a guy who was performing fairly well, obviously. He was in, pro, in the professionals and having success, and an injury hits him. He's trying for that decent contract. While he's rehabbing, obviously, the competition has now gotten even tougher to come back to and perform against. It's also interesting, too, how worrisome some of those non-stop showcase events leagues you know was it the uh, one that focused on the most the uh well, guy from iowa yeah perfect, um, perfect game yeah yeah people understand people need to rest from throwing they shouldn't throw year round and one of the one of the more interesting things that i took away from passing everybody likes to talk about how throwing is an unnatural motion 
And it's not necessarily the throwing motion itself that is so unnatural. Right. But it's more just the repetitive throwing an object 120 times. That's the unnatural thing. Yeah. Like, clearly our arms are made to throw things. Like, they'll do it. They're just not made to throw things 100 miles an hour, uh, 100 times in a row. And that's that's kind of the interesting thing when you think about the 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 physiology behind it. It was a great book. I absolutely loved it. A fascinating book. I would strongly encourage anyone who has any interest in baseball um, to pick it up. I mean, I I couldn't put it down when I would start reading. Um, you know, you know it's amazing too. Tie us into a recent headline. Did you see the headline where uh, Rob Manfred was considering limiting the number of relief pitchers using the game? Yeah, I saw that. It started on Mike and Mike with Buster Olney, and then so I guess in this day and age of Tommy John's and other injuries, if you actually have the opportunity to use more pitchers at less occurrence, would that be better for your overall health of your staff? I mean, it would be something that you, I, I would assume it'd have to be a longitudinal study. You know, it'd have to be something that you would look at over a, a period of time. Um, the thing about baseball is because it's a competition, not a science lab. You know, you, you're not going to get people that are going to be experimenting with, you know, <laughs> like you're not going to get a control in this experiment. Right. Like everybody's out there to try and win and to do the best that they can. Um so that makes it kind of hard, I guess, to to track things the way that you would in a traditional experiment. But it would be interesting to see. I mean, maybe it would. And kind of tying this back into our, our tri-state theme, but I know the Pirates specifically as an organization are trying to find the next um, kind of statistical inequities in how to keep players healthy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, going back to Russell Martin, they he wore the Iron Man shirt, they called it the shirt that had the little tracker that monitored your vitals all the time. You know, you're you're trying to find some of those market inefficiencies with, with the health and players now. And it seems almost unfair that that should be proprietary, but you know, if a team figures out how to keep their pitchers on the mound with fewer injuries, that's going to be a team that's going to be able to make some serious statistical leaps in improving their, their franchise. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's what one thing that was uh, credited to Tampa Bay. Tampa Bay had a, what, a huge period where they basically didn't have anyone suffer Tommy John for a while. And I would hope that it wouldn't be proprietary. I know it would be for a while. Right. Because, but I mean, it would be in the best interest of baseball for it to, to be league-wide and not just, oh, we have this now, so we're going to keep it to ourselves. But... Fascinating book, Jeff Pass in the Arm. I got it for a dollar ninety nine on Amazon, the uh, ebook. I don't know if it's still a dollar ninety nine on there, but uh, it's well worth whatever you pay for it. Or go to your library, check it out there. If they don't have it, ask if they'll uh, <laughs> library. <laughs> library. You know these things. They're like uh, houses full of books. <laughs> Borrow them for free. Just bring them back. Um, yeah, absolutely. Give it a shot. All right, Bob. I think that's gonna wrap us up for today. We are well past our civic duty for podcasting today Alrighty. <laughs> so we'd like to again thank our listeners and ask if you're listening to us on itunes that you give us a rate and review we are recording semi-regularly as regularly as 
two dads and a guy who's busy traveling the world can record uh, this summer. So keep your ear to the ground for our next podcast. If you want to check us out on the web, in the meantime, you can do so at www.tsmbaseball.com. You can email us, tristatebb at tsmbaseball.com. You can follow us on the Twitter, at tristatebb. And you can check us out on Facebook at facebook.com backslash tsmbaseball. So for Bob Finkbeiner, this is Andy Bird, and we look forward to talking to you soon.